Well, if you have your Bibles, you can take them out and turn with me to uh, the book of Isaiah. The Cook family has already read for us our sermon text, and so we won't read that again, those nine verses again. And really what I want to do is more than just looking at those nine verses, is I I really want to... um, I really want to preach the whole Old Testament this morning. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm serious. We're going to do a flyover of the whole Old Testament so that you can understand what's happening in Isaiah and so that you can ha- understand what's happening at Christmas and so that you can understand what's happening in the future. And so, um, like I said, I'm not going to read all of that, but let's do pray before, we, uh, before I begin to preach. Father, we come to you in the mighty and strong name of your son, Jesus. And what I, my prayer is, Lord, that you would enable me, Lord, to be your preacher of your word, Lord, and you would be with us, Lord. We are in a, such a time that we're so easily distracted. We've got phones that will be buzzing, watches that will be going off, thoughts that will be entering in our minds, people that will be moving about, Lord, and help us, enable us by the power of your spirit to focus in this time. And Lord, would you just come and would you speak the truth that comes from your word of who you are, Jesus, what you came to do and what you are doing. May we see ourselves in such a time as this. May we see ourselves, may this, what we read about you, Jesus, taking place in Isaiah, the 11th chapter. May we see that as our future. And may that give us great hope in this time. It's in your name we pray, amen. I'm tickled to be preaching out of the book of Isaiah, believe it or not, because currently, like I would say, my biblical fascination is with the book of Isaiah. And here's why. Uh, Let me give you just a little overview of the book of Isaiah. Some scholars call the book of Isaiah the Bible within the Bible. And here's why. Uh, Isaiah is the prophet of God. He's writing and prophesying around 680 BC, somewhere around there. So about, you know, 700 years before the, the birth of Jesus is when um, Isaiah is writing all of this. And um, like I said, Isaiah is fascinating. And here's a couple of facts I'll give you about Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 chapters in it. Now, even though as Isaiah writes it, it's not like God said chapter one, verse one. It's not like the voice you listen to whenever you're listening to the Bible. I mean, it's thus saith the Lord and the Lord is speaking. And Isaiah is, we believe Isaiah is writing, but nevertheless, it doesn't come to us chapters and verses like that. It's broken down by editors later. But nevertheless, the the chapters, for the most part, like the real chapter breaks and they're broken thematically. And there's 66 chapters. Now that's intriguing because there's 66 books of the Bible. 66 chapters, 66 books of the Bible. Also, you can look at Isaiah from kind of a a thematic kind of a a perspective, and it's broken down into two themes. So if we were to break down Isaiah into two themes, it's these themes. Chapters 1 through 39, they deal with, um, with sin and judgment, impending doom. Doom's coming, judgment's coming because of your sin. And there's a thread of mercy and grace and hope as we even see in the 11th chapter that fall in that first section. But nevertheless, the theme, overarching theme is one of sin and doom and judgment. And the second part, starting in chapter 40 through 66, it's a theme of God's grace and God's mercy and the coming of the suffering servant who will be Jesus. Now that sounds a whole lot like the Old Testament. Again, that's overarching, but sounds a whole lot like the Old Testament and the New Testament, does it not? The Old Testament, sin, judgment, right? There's thread of mercy and grace in there. The New Testament, mercy and grace being realized in the person of Jesus who is the suffering servant. Another couple things we could say about the uh, book of Isaiah that, like I said, that I just like find completely fascinating is, in fact, the second 
part. It starts in, like I said, Isaiah um, chapter 40. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 says this. And you, you can look this up if you want. It's not on the screens, but it says this. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now that's a prophecy concerning who? You don't have to say it out loud, but it's John the Baptist. And so how does the New Testament open up? A fulfillment of that prophecy with the ministry of John the Baptist. I mean, isn't that fascinating? Isaiah 66 ends with a prophecy of a new heavens and new earth. The book of Revelation ends in, well, it ends in Revelation 22, but in Revelation 21, you have John talking about, speaking about the new heavens and the new earth that he sees. And chapter 22 ends with God's people in the new heavens and the new earth. The other fascinating thing about the the book of Isaiah, and I just love it when God does this kind of stuff. Like, I absolutely love it, is In 1946, so that's not that long ago. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but some of you were alive in 1946. In 1946, in the years 1947, in Israel, south of the Dead Sea, in a little town called Qumran, there's a a goat herder, a boy, who finds the greatest archaeological find to ever be found. There will never be, I don't think, a greater archaeological found that was found in the years 1946 and 47, even if we find the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, even if Indiana Jones discovers the Ark of the Covenant, this, what was found for us as believers, is a greater find. And what was found there was the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the book of Isaiah in its entirety is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, here's the awesome part. The book of Isaiah that's found in 1946 is 1,000 years older than any other manuscript we had at that time. Now think about that, 1,000 years older. I mean, 1,000 years is a long time ago. You think about the time whenever the United States was founded as a country. That's a long time ago, right? Brother Joe, you were there, you remember it, 1776. No, no, maybe you weren't, almost, but that's a long time ago, right? All of that, and that's just, what, 240-something years ago. We're talking about a thousand years older. Now, this is important for us because some people believe the Bible works like this giant game of telephone. That if I whispered something in Luann's ear and then she told Teresa and Teresa, you know, sort of told Jim and it worked all the way it's around. And we got over here to Derek. We said, Derek, what was said? And you would say, well, there would be something completely different than what Luann first heard. And people believe that's how the Bible came. First of all, is that's not how the Bible was transmitted. It was transmitted in the first by, thus saith the Lord, God speaks, a prophet writes. But then after that, it's written time and time again. If Luann wrote it and handed it, and then even like, that's even not how it works because the people that are writing it are scribes. They got to go away basically to college for six years to learn how to write. So you can imagine it being written and written and written all the time you get here. Maybe just maybe it'd be true, but then what if through biblical archaeology, we could move our way back? We could go to, Nick, what did you, it's the same thing. We keep going back and we keep going back and we're getting closer and closer because of time to what was originally said. That's what we have happening in the book of Isaiah. I think again, why the book of Isaiah? Why would God choose this book? Gosh, because there's so much, so many vivid prophecies of Jesus found in the book of Isaiah. We see this one on Isaiah 11 about the future coming of this king and kingdom. We see Isaiah 53. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's the gospel in the book of Isaiah. 
fact, scholars call it the fifth gospel. Holy cow, it's unreal when you read about it and know what's happening to Jesus. And again, 1,000 years older. But listen, God's not just doing that so that pique our curiosity. God's not just doing that so we would be fascinated by the Bible. But God is doing that to reveal to us that what we hold in our hands is his word. And that if this is the word of God, then what you and I, what we need to do in response to it is to listen to it and to heed it. This is unlike any other book that's ever been written. But this contains the very word of God. And in the same way, when Jesus is baptized and the father speaks out from heaven, he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he says, listen to him. And in the same way, God is saying to us, even today, this is my word. Now I want you to listen to it. And in this word contains such rich and vivid prophecies It contains beautiful prophecies that we see coming here. Last week, Derek handled one very well for us in Isaiah chapter 7 about Jesus, Emmanuel. A few weeks before that, we've been looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. Sean preached about the seed of the woman found in Genesis 3. And today I get to preach for you from Genesis, the 11th chapter, the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. Like I said, Clayton and Amanda, they've already read Isaiah 11 for us, but let's just look at verse number one if you want to take out your Bibles. There shall come forth, Isaiah says, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, I don't want us to skip over any of those words, this rich language being used there. I think the question we should ask ourselves is why is there a stump of Jesse and not a tree of Jesse? Don't skip over the word stump. That's an important word. I want you to picture just for a minute a stump. Now, for those of you that came here this morning and you entered in through the big parking lot and you came down front and came into the building there, you had an illustration of this because there's a stump there. And let's just be honest. Don't, some of you don't start crying on me, but let's just be honest. A stump is a sad thing. A stump, like that stump that's out there, it's like the tombstone of a tree. That a stump is what remains of something that was once very beautiful. I mean, even that tree that's out there, Jackie Smith, kind of, she's kind of our, our historian. She's told me, Andy, there's, un, there's probably hundreds of pictures have been taken in front of that tree. Every Easter, Folks would gather here to come into the church before families would stand under that tree, have their picture made in front of that tree. People have gathered under the shade provided by that tree. For years, it's been there. And now all that remains is a stump. And, and so what happened? Well, again, Jackie said, seven to 10 years ago, lightning struck that tree. I was on my front porch here behind it. I saw it, I heard it. Lightning strikes it and the center of the tree dies. Fast forward 10 years and the whole inside of the tree has been, is dead and it must be cut down, taken down. And the same thing is happening here. Why does Isaiah say that there will be a stump from the, a stump of, of Jesse? Because what was in the tree of Jesse has become diseased and it will be taken, it will be cut down, it will be cut off 
and all that will remain is a stump. Second part we got to unwrap to under, understand this text is who's Jesse? Was n- not Uncle Jesse from the Dukes of Hazard? That much we know, right? It's not any other Jesse that you know. Jesse is the father of King David. Jesse is King David's father and the prophet Samuel, some 300 years probably, 300 years before Isaiah is saying this, Samuel shows up and Samuel says that God is going to establish an eternal king on an eternal throne and he will come from the family of Jesse. He will be from the family of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So from the city of Bethlehem will be a man named Jesse. Jesse will put forth a son whose name is David. And he says, from that line will reign an eternal king. But now all of a sudden we arrive here in Isaiah and we see that God is saying that there's gonna be a stump, that that the tree is gonna be cut down. So what is that all about? Well, here's what God is saying is that God's judgment is coming to his people in the form of exile, not the country ban, but in the form of banishment from the land. Now, this is important theological concept that we must grasp. And so I'm gonna take the time to kind of lay this out as quickly as I can, but I wanna lay this out to you. That what God is saying is God is going to, and God does this in the book of Isaiah. We see it, it's happening in Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Ezra. All of these are taking place. These prophecies are taking place. These prophets have been risen up either before the time of exile, during the time of exile. Um, but we got to understand what's happening in exile. Exile is like a, a giant form of, um, of timeout. Like God's a big, you know, God's a big proponent of timeout. Parents, like, try that right? It's, it's a good thing. Not to count down to time out, although God brings warning. If that's what you want to do, uh, that's okay. Like I'm going to tell one, two, but still like God believes in time out. And so throughout the Bible, we see this time out being in the form of banishment, in the form of exile. Not the first time God does it in, in the garden with um, Adam and Eve. So God places Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve sin against God. And what's God do at the end of that is God kicks them out of the garden. Like they sin, break the law. And so God banishes them from the garden. In fact, God places two cherubim with flaming swords to protect the entrance of the, uh, of the garden. In fact, we could say this, and if you want to write this down, and this would be worth your time of writing down. That there is throughout the Bible, there is this pattern in the Bible that we see. It's the pattern that goes with the promise of the kingdom of God. This isn't original with me. This is, a, I believe, probably original maybe with uh, Graham's Goldsworthy. He wrote a, a, a series of books on this. Uh, another guy's written a much smaller book called, uh, I think it's uh, God's Big Picture, a guy by the name of Vaughn Roberts. So if this is something you go, man, I find this intriguing. You could read that book. But what he sh- says is here's the pattern that emerges in the Bible. And this will help you whenever you drop into the Bible. Maybe you could say is, okay, where are we in this time? Is what we see happening is God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. So God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. So Adam and Eve, God's people. God's place is the Garden of Eden. God's rule comes to them in the form of one command. You know, you'd think you could keep one, but we're such sinners, right? We can't even keep one. They couldn't keep one. Just got one, really? Yes, and they broke it. One command, 
enjoying God's blessing, the blessing of creation, an unfallen creation, the blessing of, we could even say, meaningful work, the blessing of community, one with another, the blessing of, most of all, a relationship with God. That God would come and manifest himself with his presence in the cool of the evening, and they had perfect communion with God. And Adam and Eve, they sin against God. They break that rule, and their punishment for that is they're kicked out, they're banished from the Garden of Eden, Everything under God's blessing has been broken. Creation, now thorns and thistles. Meaningful work is now going to be toil and sweat. Your relationship, nah, forget it, right? Jump ahead a chapter, you got brothers killing brothers out in the field. That's what you've got. Adam hides from the Lord. There's no communion with God. Yes, God's manifest presence. God is still omnipresent, but it's man and God are now at enmity with one another. Man and woman are now at enmity with one another. Everything is broken there. We could fast forward a little further, if you would, in the Bible. You got a guy by the name of Abram. This is still in the book of Genesis. God shows up to Abram and he's God's person. God chooses Abram. And he comes to Abram, he makes Abram a promise. And the promise is a place. It's descendants that he's going to take to a place. And God's rule is not yet established. But the promise is a blessing. It's through you and through your descendants, you will be a, na- you will be a blessing to the nations. Genesis ends with God fulfilling his promise to Abraham in the form of descendants. It's now a people. And the people are in the country of Egypt. That's how it ends, but then uh, Exodus picks back up and the descendants of Israel, right? The great, great grandchildren of Abraham, they're now slaves in Egypt. So the descendants of Israel, they have been in bondage, but God comes and raises up Moses and promises them through the Exodus that he's going to take them to a land. God's people, the descendants of Israel, going to God's place Land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan. On the way, they stop by Mount Sinai where God gives Moses the law and the law comes to those people. And then God's promise to the people, God's blessing is rescue and deliverance and provision. And even God's presence comes back in the form of the tabernacle. But those people are wicked and hard-hearted people. They don't keep the law. They don't love the Lord. They don't worship the Lord alone. In fact, while Moses is up on the mountaintop, they make for themselves a golden calf and they worship it. So again, the same thing happens. Banishment, exile. They're God's people, the Israelites, but they're not going to God's place. They're gonna die in the wilderness. God's rule is still the law and God's blessing, I mean, his blessing is still upon them. But then if we fast forward to where we are right before Isaiah's prophecy is God raises up Joshua. Joshua leads the people into conquest. The nation of Israel has been established. So God's people is the Jewish nation, Israel. They're in the land that God's promised to them, the land flowing with milk and honey. They have the law. And the law looks like this. The law is loving worship and obedience. It's loving worship and obedience. And God's blessing comes to them as victory over their enemies, prosperity. And even under Solomon, a temple is built where God's presence would dwell with them. But the people are a wicked people. 
And they continue to sin and to break the law and to worship idols and even their kings. They were sinful men. The first king of Israel was King Saul and he's a total train wreck. He's chosen by the people and then he's rejected by God. He's rejected by God for his gross intrusion into the priestly function. He's an incredibly prideful individual and he's rejected. And then there was the chosen king, King David, that they dearly loved. He's the tree of Jesse that's established, but David was a warrior king and a man of blood. And he's also a sinful man. In fact, the Bible says this about David, that David utterly scorned the Lord in the matter of Bathsheba. And then comes along David's son, son to the wife Bathsheba even, Solomon, who Solomon is the wisest man to ever live. And he has great promise, but he too turns out to be a total tragedy. But Solomon had his heart turned away from God. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. That's what the Bible says about him. Solomon married many foreign wives and worshiped their God. And so what we see happening as we see God's people being scattered. God's place is pretty much destroyed in exile. They're no longer under God's rule. They're no longer enjoying God's blessing. But yet in the midst of that, there is hope being spoken as we even see here in Isaiah. Doom and gloom as the tree is cut off, but there's going to come a shoot from the stump of the tree a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And this will be the new king. This is the equivalent of what Isaiah is saying here is basically what he's saying. uh, A a runner is gonna come off. A a sucker branch is gonna be raised up from the roots. Now listen to me. More than just a biblical history lesson, but today where you sit in your pew as you're gathered here, all all of your anxiety and all of your frustration and all of the ache and all of the longing and all of the angst and all of your brokenheartedness, it will all find its resolution in God's people being in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing for all of eternity. Like that is not an overestimation. That is the absolute biblical truth. Everything that you bring with you, all of your emotions and all of those negative emotions, they will find their resolution. They will be remedied when God's people are in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. It's there as the prophet Isaiah says that we will experience what the Old Testament saints called shalom, God's peace. That what Isaiah is prophesying is a future kingdom. That Isaiah works like, a, like someone who's ascended on top of a mountain to where you could see the next peak and the next peak and the next peak of a mountain. Like have you ever been hiking and climbed up to the top of a mountain to where you can, where you could see like the next mountain ridge and the next mountain ridge and the next mountain, they look closer than what they really are. That's the way that the prophet Isaiah is working. Isaiah is ascended onto a mountaintop 
peak where he can see the next peak and the next peak. And Isaiah can see in Isaiah 53, he sees the suffering servant of Christ. But here in Isaiah 11, he's seeing something that you and I have yet to even experience. He's seeing all the way into the new heavens and the new earth. He is seeing God's people, a blood-bought ransom people saved from their sin. He's seeing God's place, a new heaven and a new earth, the peace of the land. Look at this. And in verses six through nine, this shalom is experienced. This shalom is so great. This peace is so great. It's such a peaceful place that even the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Try that now and see what happens, right? The leopard will lay down with a young goat. You'll have babies, he's saying here, will be playing over the hole of a cobra. There'll be tied toddlers who will put their hands in venomous snakes' dens. Like, no, there it will be yes. That will happen because of the peace of this creation. And we will be under God's rule, under King Jesus. Look at the description in verses two through five of Jesus. That Jesus will have the spirit of the Lord. He will rest upon him. Or Jesus has this now, but we will uh, experience it in its fullness then. That Jesus will rule with perfect wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge. And the fear of the Lord will be his delight. And God's blessing will be upon us because we will be with God. And all of the wrongs of this earth and this creation and that happened under the fall will all be corrected and made right by Christ. There's another layer to the God's people and God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing that we must see that even the idea of exile and banishment is just an illustration in and of itself. That yes, they are exiled from a real place, but the greater picture is mankind has been exiled from God. That what happens, the great tragedy that happens in Genesis 2 and 3 isn't just that we lose the Garden of Eden, but it's only our union and our communion with God is broken. There's now enmity between us because God is holy and we proved ourselves time and time again to be sinners. And that's who we are. And so the picture that's really emerging from this is the truth is that we are sinners and God is holy and we're in need of our sin, of our sin to be forgiven. That where God used to dwell with his people, but now he does not. Because we are sinners and God must deal with our sin. What Israel proved itself to be is lawbreakers and sinners. And what was needed was a perfect law keeper. And God's presence comes to Israel in the tabernacle and in the temple. I said that. But the tabernacle and the temple, even of themselves, is terrifying places. When you think about the tabernacle and the temple, they are, the, the, the way they were constructed was, there a, was a section within both the tabernacle and the temple that was separated from everything else where the very manifest presence of God dwelt with his people. But it was a terrifying place. Even the most holy people you could think of, right? The priests, did you say, hey, these jokers got it together. If there's anybody religious among us, it's the priests. And the priests were scared to enter in there they entered in and they didn't go through the proper cleansing and rituals, or they entered in and they had sin, unconfessed, unforgiven sin, they were struck dead. We'd be like, you guys going like, hey, we need somebody to enter in. Who can we get? We'd go like, hey, let's get Derek. He seems like a pretty good guy. And I would say, hey, let's see what happens. I mean, in the time of the temple, the priests would enter in and like, they would know like, man, we got to tie a rope around this guy. They put bells 
were sewn around their, uh, their garments, their ephod, so that when they went in, if the bell start, stopped jingling, they go, well, we didn't have a very holy priest after all. Let's reel this joker in and find us another one to run in there. And still, even when they entered into the presence of God, they could only go in there one time. I mean, those of you, like you, you get a picture of this in Indiana Jones, right? In the end of the first movie, when they find the Ark of the Covenant and they go, hey, let's break this thing open. Bad idea, right? And the dude's faces melt and all that. that. That's a picture of God's holiness that only holy people who are holy like God can enter in. But what's happening all throughout the Bible is saying, God is holy and you are not. God is holy and you are sinners. God is the one who gives the law and you and I, we are law breakers, every one of us. And so what God is doing in the person and the work of Christ, what God is doing in that manger, in a little town, a forgotten town of Bethlehem, is God is coming true on all of his promises and sending his son to come and to be the Messiah, to come and to take the place for our sins. That even within the, the Holy of Holies, it was separated from the rest. There's a 30 foot, so this, the peak of this uh, uh, room is about 27 feet, almost 30 feet. So picture this with me, a 30 foot curtain, 30 feet by 30 foot curtain hung in the temple. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, that, temp, that temple curtain is ripped from the top to the bottom. Maybe as much as, four inches, some say six feet, but this thick curtain. And you know what's printed on the outside of the curtain? You know what stands right on the other side in the Holy of Holies in that curtain? Cherubim. Even in the Holy of Holies, even in the place where God says, I'm gonna come and dwell, there's the picture of banishment. There's a picture of keep out. Don't enter in. This isn't for you. You're a sinner. I am holy. And Jesus, as Jesus dies on the cross, that temple curtain is ripped. The writer of Hebrews, he says it like this. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, he starts off in verse one, says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. So he's saying all of this stuff you're reading about in the Old Testament, it's like a, it's like a shadow. So you have, you have something, you have a light shining on it and the shadow falls. And so what he's saying is the picture of exile and banishment and even all the prophecies and even the temple and the tabernacle, Mount Sinai, all of that stuff happening, it's, it's all in a shadow, the priestly function. And that's the book of Hebrews. It's walking through kind of all of these pictures of this place. And then in Hebrews, he jumps down. He says the true form of these realities are, is here. It's found in Christ. Jump down into verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we now through Christ, we have confidence is what he's saying. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and the living way that he has opened up for us through the curtain. What's that curtain? It's his flesh. And here in just a few minutes, you and I, we're gonna remember a body, flesh that was broken for us in this bread. His flesh has been broken so that why? So that you and I can enter in. The Christmas story is the story of the coming of King Jesus. The storyline of Jesus's life is that he is rejected by many and accepted by few. As you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're in the book of John. We'll be picking that back up in, in John, the sixth chapter. And that's what, I mean, in, uh, I'm sorry, on January the 6th, we're gonna be picking that up in John, the 12th chapter. And that's what you're gonna immediately see is the Jews want to kill Jesus. He's being accepted. 
He's being accepted by few and he's being rejected by many. Jesus, even before his birth, he's rejected by innkeepers, his family. So he's born in a cave. He's rejected by Jewish leaders. He's rejected in Jerusalem. He's rejected by his people. But they wanted a king on a throne, not a baby in the manger, and certainly not a savior on the cross. That's the real issue. They did not think they needed a savior. That's why Jesus is rejected by the Jews. But they thought they just needed a righteous king. They thought by virtue of their heritage, by virtue of their history, by virtue of their, of their half-hearted attempts at religious activities, by virtue of their knowledge, they knew God. They had the personal name of God. By virtue of their ceremonies and their rituals and their attempts to obey the law, they thought that they had earned favor with God, but the truth is they needed salvation. They desperately needed salvation. They were sinners in need of a forgiveness, like all of us. The Jews reject Jesus at his first coming because they failed to recognize their greatest need was a savior to save them from their personal sins. They thought they just needed to deliver to rescue them from the enemies and from their difficulties and not a savior to save them from their personal transgressions and iniquities and sins. And the same is true today. Same is true today of so many that reject Jesus. And the reason why they reject Jesus isn't there isn't sufficient evidence. It's that they refuse to believe that they need a savior. They yet to believe in Jesus as a savior. They think personal merit and goodness would be enough. But listen, it's never enough. If it was enough, Jesus would not need to come. Certainly Jesus would not need to die. But Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is all a sermon being preached to us that we are sinners in need of a savior. And God fulfills his promises that in Christ, in the manger, and in Christ in his life, and in Christ on the cross, that Christ is taking care of our greatest need and our greatest problem, and it is that we are sinners, that God is holy and we are not. And it's through personal faith in Christ that you and I can come to know Christ and come to experience Christ. The wonder of Christmas is to know God and to be reconciled to God. It's to know God and to enter into a personal relationship with God. It's to pray and then to know that he is with you and it's his approval and his acceptance rest upon you because not because of you, but because of what you believe in Christ. Unbeliever in the room. Those of you that have yet to trust in Christ and in Christ alone, Would you receive Christ today? Would you receive Christ as your Savior today? There's coming a day when you will stand before this eternal King, King Jesus. Read, read about it. He's full of might and he's full of wisdom and he's full of counsel. And he's a King and he judge and you will stand before him. And there won't be any pulling any wool over his eyes. 
There'll be, there'll be no pleading to anything other than what's the reality because he knows all. He knows you completely and yet loves you and is willing to display his love to you. Would you receive him as Lord and as Savior of your life? And see the great delight. It says in there that about Jesus that he delights. The fear of the Lord will be his delight. And the same thing comes true of us. How do I know if I'm genuinely saved? Gosh, man, the Bible's filled with ways that we know. Ultimately, I think you know in your heart, you know in your conscience, whether or not you've received Christ or whether you're not just trying to win his favor by doing good works like the Jews did or by winning good works by saying, hey, you know what? My, my mom was a good person. My mom was a Christian. Hey, I was a, you know, we've got like a, a cradle Catholic all through my life. So I know I gotta be covered. I've been a good person. Like none of those things is true. The Bible never says, look to your behavior, look to your heart, look to this. None of those things that ask you about your faith. Where does your faith ultimately rest? Does it rest in you and what you can do? See, there's your problem. If I would say to you, how do you know you're saved? And you give me any other answer, the finished work of Christ. That's the only, that's all I got. If you give any other answer than that, then golly. It's all there is. Christ is the one who's emptied it, who's opened up the way for me to know Christ and experience Christ. And it's through knowing and experience and he changes everything. He gives us new taste buds. See, some of you think of church and you're like, gosh, this is a drag and this is boring. I'm reading my Bible, I can't imagine what that'd be like. Going to these Bible studies, these jokers offer, you guys offer so much. Community group and discipleship groups and Christmas Eve services and all of this stuff. But listen to me, when you experience Jesus, when he opens up that way, the foretaste of knowing him is receiving the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes in to change us and he gives us new taste buds for the things of God. Right now, my wife and I were trying to eat right and eat somewhat healthy. And I just told her yesterday, I'm never going to like broccoli. I'm never going to like cauliflower. I can pretend and I can tell myself and I can season it. But at the end of the day, mashed potatoes taste far better than anything that is green. Amen? (laughs) Yeast rolls. Oh, my Lord. Yeast rolls, especially the ones Charlotte Jones makes, are unreal. They're manna from heaven. And nothing, you're never going to change my mind about that. And you may feel the same way about the things of God. You may say they sound so boring and so true. To pray, what is that? And to read my Bible, what is that? And what I'm telling you is whenever you experience the new birth, your taste buds change. The things that you used to, oh my God, oh, they're not so bad now. In fact, they're my delight, fear of the Lord, to walk in the Lord, to know him, to experience him, to pray, to gather with his people. Oh my gosh, they are a delight to me. Supernatural. And as I preach this and look around the room, some of you give evidence even by your own life. Believers in the room, gosh, there's so much good news in this passage 700 years before Jesus even comes to fulfill it. Isaiah stands on a mountaintop, if you will, prophetically looking out across the hills and the valleys that are to come. And he's saying, look, I can see it. It's coming that one day all of God's people will be in God's place. All of God's people are those who have faith in Jesus. All of God's people is not all of creation. 
understand that. Those of you who may be pragmatically universalist, that is nowhere found in the Bible. God's people are the people who trust in God's son, Jesus Christ. All of God's people, those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, will be ruled by King Jesus. We will be enjoying God's blessing. The blessing of knowing God and entering into his presence. The perfect peace of God. Peace in creation. Peace with each other. And peace with him. There's a saying that saints have said throughout the years. In English, it's just translated this. Come, Lord Jesus. As we find ourselves in this Advent season, we join with those saints and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, come. We long for that day when all of your people will be gathered. And we will dwell with you. We will experience the peace that Isaiah prophetically saw. We will experience that and we cannot wait for that day. Jesus, as we enter into even this time that supersedes the Christmas time, the time where we remember your flesh that was broken, the way that you open up for us to enter into a right relationship with God. Your blood that will be spilled, that will be poured out. It's a picture of blood sacrifice to cover our sins. We remember that in this time. We say, thank you, Jesus. Many reject you even now. But by us eating this bread, drinking this cup with faith, we receive you. Receive you for who you are, Jesus. We recognize you for who you are. More than a baby born in a manger. You're the Father's anointed one. You are the Christ given to save God's people from their sins. And you are the eternal king. The eternal king that was promised through the mouth of Samuel that you were that, Jesus. And today we recognize that you reign and you rule on a throne where you are in the heavenlies holding the very cosmos together by the power of your word. And we long for your return, Jesus. We long for your return when you will right all of the wrongs in this world. When you will do away with all sickness and all sadness and all death. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.